Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pulled on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. There are many views of the world and what's happening in it. We all have or should have our own personal worldviews. Is there a single Christian worldview? What is the Catholic worldview? What can we, the Catholic faithful, do to enhance our Catholic worldview? Christ the King Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan has started an adult education series on the Catholic worldview, and they took that theme as a stepping-off point for their 2012 parish mission. These educational sessions are held in the parish center between the two morning masses. This limits the time to just over an hour. The speakers have been both local experts and invited guests brought in to speak on a worldview topic. The Catholic Worldview series is an outgrowth of a meeting called by Professor Barbara Morgan, the Director of Religious Education for the parish and the founder and first chair of the University of Steubenville Catechesis Department. She's an internationally published author and teacher. The men and women at that roundtable formation meeting formed the core of the series. Our regular listeners would know most of their names. I will be making a concerted effort to edit and get to air these talks before the vital U.S. elections in November. A few have already been heard on this program. Our speaker today is Ave Maria Radio's own Al Cresta. We'll hear him right after our first break. Stay with us. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. Our speaker on this program is Ave Maria Radio's own Al Cresta. Al's a revert to the faith. After spending a number of years as a Protestant minister, he studied his way back home. About 25 years ago, he was asked to do a daily afternoon talk radio program, From the Heart. That Protestant radio station wasn't entirely happy when one of their star talents returned to the Catholic Church. That was about 15 years ago. It was just about that time that Ave Maria Radio went on the air in Ann Arbor. Al was offered the general manager's job, and he and his family moved to Ann Arbor. 
A few months after that, Creston in the morning took the airwaves. And a few months after that, he hired me as their first operations manager. Al is now the president of Ave Maria Radio and is syndicated nationally by the Eternal Word Radio Network. He's heard on over 200 Catholic radio stations. He's also a prolific author and speaker. For his first contribution to the Christ the King Catholic Worldview series, Al's title was, They Don't Know What They Have. Here to introduce Al is Professor Barbara Morgan. In December, I met with a few people in the parish who might have something to say about what we ought to do and say about Catholic worldview. And happily, Al and Sally Cresta were there. And I gave everybody, including myself, 15 minutes to say what they wanted to say, and then we would discuss. That's a tough thing to do to give people only 15 minutes, especially when they have a lot of thoughts about it. But Al did it superbly. And I have been waiting for this opportunity to hear him develop what he said then. What he said then was, and he said this with very great passion, they don't know what we have. Al Cresta is the president and CEO of Ave Maria Radio. For those of you that don't know him or don't know that, his wonderful program, Late in the Afternoon, is such a a blessing. It's worth going back to the website and listening to his discussions with various guests and on various topics. He and Sally have five children and six grandchildren. Since 1997, we've been so happy to have him. He was an evangelical pastor for a great number of years. And when I started talking to him about Catholic worldview, he said, yeah, that would be a good thing to talk about. I once gave a series of 16 or 18 or whatever presentations on the Christian worldview of money. We are very blessed to have Al Cresta this morning. And let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, for this brother in the Lord that we have in our parish family. And bless him today, and continue to bless him, especially in his work concerning the mandate. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Al. Well, thank you very much, Barbara. I thank Barbara for the invitation. That was a good night that we had brainstorming about this series, and I much appreciate her stewardship of this worldview series. It's not a very common thing in uh, American Catholicism to talk about worldview. Evangelical Protestants have been the ones who have had most of the conversation on it. But, of course, one of the reasons for that is that Catholicism is a worldview. It is. It's about believing, and it's about belonging, and it's about behaving, and it's about the cultivation of a whole filter by which we understand and interpret the world around us. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. 
I was asked to talk about this phrase that came up that night, and it was, they don't know what we have. And I was thinking of our children, the generation coming up behind my generation, they don't know what we have because much of what we say doesn't get the reinforcement that one would hope from the surrounding instruments of culture, universities, media, entertainment. And that has put us in a very different place vis-a-vis the upcoming generation than Christian parents were a few generations ago. I also had in mind that night that the world generally doesn't know what we've got. By world here, I mean the world system. Paco, I think last week, used three different definitions for world. World being, first of all, there's about worldview, so world is good to have a definition of. World being what God has created. Secondly, world being this place that man and woman inhabit and are told to fill. And then thirdly, the world as the disfigured creation, the world system. You might call it corporate flesh, which erects itself against the knowledge of God. So we've got world as God's creation, the created order. You've got world as God so loved the world, he put man and woman in the world to image him and to fill the earth and to have dominion over it and cultivate it. And then we've got, you might say, the world waiting to be filled and formed, and now we've got the world as it's been disfigured by the fall. So I was especially concerned about the generation coming up and especially concerned about the world. I mean it, they don't know. They don't know what we've got. They don't know what we know. And obviously that title can be misunderstood. I mean, St. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so, you know, obviously I don't want you to get puffy about this. I don't want puffiness. The knowledge of which I speak is, by its very nature, unselfish. It's something we share because we want to enrich the lives of those around us. We found good things. And, you know, you find a piece of music that you love, you know it, and you share it with your friends. And, you know, knowledge imposes upon us both authority and obligation. If you come across a traffic accident when you leave here today and you discover that the driver of one of the cars isn't breathing, well, if you know CPR, you're obligated to act on your knowledge. And, in fact, those around will step aside and let you, the knowing one, do the CPR. Knowledge is for sharing. And heaven help you if you know where the bargains on soiree-worthy dresses from Robert Rodriguez are and don't share it with your girlfriends. Or how you can get U of M football tickets at half price and don't share it with your brothers. Knowledge is for sharing. And over the last two centuries, though, there's been a profound and disastrous repositioning of faith in Jesus Christ and of life as his disciples, his apprentices, his students. When I say disciple, I mean apprentice, I mean student. The word for disciple is, in fact, the word for learner in the Greek New Testament. Faith and knowledge joined together. That's the Catholic vision. Faith and knowledge mutually reinforcing one another, joined together. And really what God has joined together, late Western culture has now separated and divided. And the consequences of that divorce are all around us. We see fragmentation, alienation, division, and our social experience, our being in the world, we see a fourfold rupture. First of all, we've got a rupture between God and man. And we see the evidence of that in despair, death, confusion, 
the inability of people to give thanks as easily as they once did. There's also the division that people are divided from one another. And it can be as simple as blame shifting in a family situation. You know, husband says, you did it. The wife says, you did it. Adam says to God, you know, it's the woman you gave me. Eve blames the snake. The snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. And then... And it can go all the way to nationalism, where nations are against nations. So not only the rupture between God and man, but a rupture between human beings and one another. And of course, there's the rupture within ourselves. Addictions, depression, anxiety, human brokenness. And lastly, there's an alienation from nature. Ecological disasters, Chernobyl, Katrina, tsunamis. These four ruptures, these four breakdowns, all show up in Genesis. They all show up there at the time of uh, the fall. And human history is really the story of God healing these alienations and steering creation through a series of covenants with persons that he created in his image towards that ultimately final union, that reunion of God in creation, where St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, God will be all in all. So we're moving from, again... Eden to the New Jerusalem, but a lot of pain and suffering in between. We're moving from that original creation to when God will be all in all, according to 1 Corinthians 15. But again, in between, a lot of sin, suffering, and death. You know, the catechism begins with a discussion of the relationship between faith and knowledge. I don't know if you know that, but it actually begins there. The primary catechetical document we've got as a community, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, begins with a discussion of faith and knowledge. In our culture, what's happened is, if it's faith, it's not knowledge. And if it's not knowledge, you're not expected to share it. You might want to share it with your friends, like you would a hobby or something. But you no longer have the obligation to share what you know spiritually and morally. Our culture likes to say, you know, well, you know, it's a good thing if you got a little bit of religion. It's like, it's good you have a little bit of saliva. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's too personal. It's not for sharing. Keep it private. Now, it used to be that faith in the Christian tradition meant two things. It meant that the exercising of faith, that personal trust that we exercise, faith in something, faith in someone. So we have faith in Jesus. We have faith in the scripture. But it was more than that. It wasn't just the act of believing or trusting. It also meant the faith referred to a body of revealed and experiential knowledge that made up a Catholic understanding of the world, a Catholic worldview. It was the Catholic faith. It was a way of seeing. It was a way of approaching life and valuing things, things about God and man and the world and history and law and morality. It was knowledge of life. It wasn't something imposed upon life. It wasn't just beliefs about life. It was life, knowledge of life, knowledge passed along from generation to generation. It was like the multiplication table, right? You'd get it from your parents. You'd get it from your teachers. They didn't invent it. They didn't invent it. They passed it on to you, though. And then we would be, ideally, apprenticed or discipled into the Catholic way of life. That'd be family, it'd be church, and really culture and society had a hand in this too. We would be apprenticed. This wasn't book knowledge. This wasn't study in the theological sense or even intense biblical study, although some people would go on to do that kind of thing. No, it was a matter of lived social experience. Everybody would develop a sense of time and a sense of history because of the liturgical calendar. 
and the liturgical year. We would develop a sense of community with all previous generations because we celebrated the feasts of the saints who were members of the community in the invisible world. We would develop a sense of international community because the church was Catholic. We were members of an international body that transcended our ethnicity and obligated us beyond our own individual nation, our race, or our class. We would develop an appreciation for the goodness of matter because of our disciplines of feasting and fasting, and, of course, by the materiality of the sacraments. All meals would have some resemblance to Eucharist, right? All water would find its deepest meaning in baptism. You'd learn a morality that involves sacrifice, love. You would learn very early on you couldn't do evil in order to accomplish good. You would also learn, in fits and starts, a big story, a macro story, what they call a meta-narrative about life. It would be a story about creation and fall and redemption and where history is going towards that grand climax where Jesus appears and there's the final judgment. And where Catholics were dominant in the culture, as in Bavaria or Poland or uh, Southern Ireland, then the culture would reflect the Catholic way of life. Churches would be at the center of the towns. Uh, church spires would be the tallest points in the community. The Sunday celebration of the Eucharist was the pulsating heartbeat of the community. And the liturgical calendar would form the basis of the civil calendar. The climax of the year would be the Triduum. Believe it or not, that happens places. When Catholics were a minority, though, then we formed a counterculture, a counter-community. We had a counter-set of values. We had a different story. We told a different story. We were like the Jews in Babylon. We'd pray for the city that took us captive, and we'd pray for its prosperity. Or we'd be like the earliest generations of Christians in Rome, a kind of a shadow society behind the pomp and the pageantry of the empire. And above all would be Jesus. We would learn about Jesus. We learn his history. We learn intimacy with him in prayer. We learn how to imitate him. We, if we're lucky, we would be told about the new Adam who had fashioned a new beginning for the human race. He was both the pioneer of our faith and he was also the goal or the end of our faith. St. Augustine said, let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. Or as St. Cyril of Jerusalem put it, So then you, who have become sharers in Christ, are appropriately called Christ's. Now, this was never perfect. And, of course, it can be subject to great misunderstanding. There never was a golden age. But up until recently, relatively recently, the last 200 years, the Christian worldview was not considered kind of a private hobby. It was a way of engaging life. It was a way of engaging truth. It was a way of engaging reality. Christianity was thought to be true to the way things are. And Christ was our baptism. He was our Eucharist. He was our path. And he was our destination. And I want to emphasize our destination because it was a communal, not just an individual enterprise. We were bound together. We knew that we weren't merely our own. As Father David McConey's written, quote, the hidden beauty of Jesus Christ is not only that he longs to live for you, it is not even that he lives with you or through you, but that he actually desires to live in you, and we dare to say, as you. You see, when we talk about the saints, the saints are the refractions of Christ's light. Jesus has lived in them. They aren't carbon copies of one another. 
The saints are really very unusual characters, very unusual. Some of them are eccentric. And it's because Jesus lives through them as them. And he wants to make your life the same. We're called to be saints. And I know that, who am I to be a saint? Look, you better come to grips with it because that's what you were created to be. Yeah, I know everybody's saying I'm counting on purgatory. Don't count on purgatory, you know? Purgatory is what you get if you don't get the prize, right? It's where you go to clean up before you get to the banquet. I'd just rather go into the banquet on my top form. But my point is, though, the saints reflect who Christ is. And he wants to make your life, in all of its various dimensions, in all the joys and struggles, he wants to make that his life. Father uh, David says, can we begin to fathom what that means? How do we become one with God? And what do we mean when we say Christ wants to be wholly identified with his followers? Perhaps even more startling, what do we mean when we say a Christian's primary vocation is to become a partaker of the divine nature, as our first Pope, St. Peter, wrote in his second epistle? It's deification, as Dan Keating has written about, wonderful little book on deification that Dan has done. It's what's called sometimes divinization, or in the East they call it theosis. This was the very purpose of creation. This was the object and the end of all knowledge, that God would share his life with us. He would know us. We would know him. And that love came from the triune God. It overflowed into creation. There was love and community before the creation of the world. In fact, the creation of the world was really, in some way, an overflow, an act of divine sharing. This is what we are called to know, not just believe, to know. And it really was knowledge. It wasn't mere belief. Look at Scripture. We get cowed into using the word, I believe. And, of course, there is a sense in which we say, I believe. That's what the creed is. But belief in that sense, other than knowledge. When we say, I believe, we're saying, I adhere to this knowledge. All right? Crucified under Pontius Pilate is a historical piece of knowledge. When we add, by believe, we say we adhere to that. And you take a look at Scripture, and what you'll find is, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let not the wise boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of the strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Luke begins his gospel. I wanted to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Or John, I write this to you that you may know that you have eternal life. We know that we are children of God, and we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding to know him who is true. What we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what our hands have handled, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Paul, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by being like him in his death, if somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Hosea gives us the downside. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Our culture wants us to always put an asterisk after those words, so they don't really mean knowledge. What they mean is opinion, belief, 
what you personally would like. That is not what Christian knowledge is. Christian knowledge is really knowledge. It's about reality. The first Christians received the body of knowledge. They received experiences that they intended to pass on to all who would learn. That's what discipleship is. It's learning. They were to teach and demonstrate what life is supposed to be when God is in charge. That's what our families are supposed to be, where the children get to see what life is like when God is in charge. Now, of course, we all know we teach a great deal about what life is like when God is not in charge, but at least we teach by way of contrast then, right? Because we do have times when God is in charge and we can say, this is the way it's supposed to be. (laughs) And then we can say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This wasn't secret. This was public experience in the church. It wasn't technical knowledge. It was, however, empirical knowledge. It was seen, it was heard, it was handled, it was touched. People would say, that's it. Christianity was, first of all, then, a claim to know certain things about God, man, history, the future, a way of living, and to reduce it, as our culture does, to mere belief. You get the feeling that sometimes when you speak in different public groups, that your faith in Christ, your knowledge, your testimony, your experience of God is on a par with stamp collecting or raising bonsai or something. Well, that's cool for you, you know. Really, you're into that? Yeah, that's good. I'm by myself, but, uh, you know, that's... No, Christian knowledge is public knowledge, and people are supposed to come to terms with it. That's what I really want to say. Something has happened over the last two centuries, century and a half, Our social institutions in our popular mind have repositioned the relationship between faith and knowledge. I would love to tell the story of how that happened, but we can't do it here. Now listen to this. The end result is as though some kind of bargain was struck, that some kind of truce was formed that we don't really know about. So the domain of knowledge now gets left to scientists and technicians and engineers. Domain of faith and devotion, well, that's to theologians and religious scholars and pastors and priests and bishops. Intellect and argument are the tools of scientists and engineers. Emotional rhetoric, earnest advocacy, those are the instruments of religionists. Empirical proof, logical deduction, that's the method of science. Exhortation and inspiration, well, that's the stock and trade of clergy. Scientists and other purveyors of, quote, knowledge move the mind. Religionists and keepers of the commandments, well, they move the will. The sciences draw from experience, religion and theology from authority. Scientists get to say, I know. Pastors and theologians get to say, I believe. Now, faith and knowledge are now considered the opposite, or at least opposed in some way to one another, rather than reinforcing one another. People say, if you know, then you don't need faith. If you have faith, it's because you don't know. In the older understanding of things, the pastor and the geologist knew certain things about life. In fact, oftentimes the pastor would be the geologist in 19th century England. Today, the pastor simply believes and the geologist knows. It's gotten so bad, really, that in some Christian communities, they actually believe that Growth in grace and growth in faith is done apart from knowledge. And knowledge is an obstacle to faith. There was a 1994 poll funded by the Murdoch Charitable Trust 
set out to discover churchgoers' priorities when they're seeking a pastor. This was done among evangelical Protestant churches. And so they had a list of five qualifications that were considered most important for your pastor. Theological knowledge was the last of the five qualifications most important for a pastor. The last. Now, we don't have to worry about that here because at Christ the King, Father Ed has become a great source of diploma envy. And there are a lot of us who kind of have to confess our sin because of his ability to be able to get all these degrees while we end up having to just do our work. I joke. In the context of modern culture and life, we're urged to treat our central beliefs as something other than knowledge, something far short of knowledge. They don't know what we have. They don't know what we know. Christian teachers and leaders used to provide people with knowledge of reality. I'm going over this time and again. I don't want you to miss it. They used to give knowledge of reality with which people had to come to terms. All right? This is real stuff. When I was a kid, like a lot of boys, I played Little League Baseball. And I remember one year I was catcher in a game. wasn't a position I was accustomed to. And I took a fastball in the knee. It was this knee, by the way. Look what happened, you know. <laughs> Anyways, it hurt. It hurt. And made me a little reluctant to get into the game. And I remember playing right field once. Pop fly. I could have gotten to it, but I didn't really exert myself. And this coach came over to me, put his arm around me and said, Al, listen, you know, I know you took that shot to your knee like that. But, you know, you can't let that be forever. You've got to confront that fear. You've got to go and exert yourself. You've got to run. Now, that's a small thing, but he was telling me the truth. See, that wasn't just his belief about life. That's really true. That's a form of wisdom knowledge that we don't credit as real knowledge. But he was sharing knowledge with me. And Christian teachers have a knowledge of reality with which all human beings must come to terms. Oftentimes, Christian teachers are left in the position not of sharing knowledge of reality, Christian teachers are in the position of coaxing and wheedling people into professing things and doing things by some means other than providing them with a knowledge of reality. I've never accepted that, thankfully. Not because of any smart I had. It's just when Jesus first appeared to me, I just knew that he was dealing with reality. He was Lord of all. And I've always believed that the Christian faith was about reality. I like to say it's not about religion. It's about reality. I say that simply because people have a misunderstanding, of course, of what religion is. But we're supposed to be living out our experiment in faith, testing, confirming it. These truths are supposed to become real to us as we get older. We experience them differently, but we share them. It's like we share our findings with one another. That's what testimonies are about. We learn about reality and we share that with others. It's real. It's not just a functioning or an overactive imagination. And let me bear witness for just a moment here. I'm experiencing more joy and confidence in my relationship with Christ today than when I was 25 years old. I say that not as a personal boast, but as an encouragement, especially to younger people who seem to think that getting old means losing your enthusiasm for spiritual things or that somehow it's inevitable that you reach a plateau. And then, of course, you go fully horizontal in the casket. But there's this long plateau before it. I'm telling you, that's not true. 
And I, I want middle-aged people to know as well who think that somehow they'll never recover that first flush of conversion, that first love that they once had. That's not necessarily true. I mean, God visited me in profoundly joyful and philosophically confident and theologically rewarding ways in 1974, 1985, 1996, 2011. Now, this is not to say that everything in between was dry land or valleys. I've been blessed with powerful experiences beyond what I deserve and which go far beyond my capacity to work the spiritual disciplines. But I, I want you to know that. I want to share experiences, insights, epiphanies, realizations, communions, uh, that I've had and that you have. It is about knowledge. It's not just my overactive imagination or my subjective personal beliefs. God speaks the truth. He is the ultimate holder of knowledge. Knowing something means knowing it as God knows it. They don't know. They simply don't know what we've got. In a world which they think they've got knowledge which is certain, what we've got is uncertain. What we've got is opinions. You've got beliefs. I've got knowledge. It's profoundly dangerous for our culture to do that. It is profoundly dangerous for a culture to discredit moral and spiritual knowledge and to reduce it to mere opinion or belief. Do any of you know Jacob Bernowski? He did a series back in the 1970s called The Ascent of Man that was on PBS. He had an accompanying coffee table book, you know, those kind of things, like Carl Sagan's Cosmos and Kenneth Clark's Civilization series. Well, Borowski did this thing called The Ascent of Man. And in the accompanying book, there's a chapter called Knowledge or Certainty, which corresponds with the film. Knowledge or Certainty. And in that, he dramatically, he's at Auschwitz. He strides out into the crematorium's ash pond there, and he squats down and he scoops up a handful of mud. He says, it's flushed with the ashes of my relatives. He says, this was not done by gas. It was done by arrogance. It was done by dogma. It was done by ignorance. When people believe they have absolute knowledge with no test in reality, this is how they behave. This is what men do when they aspire to the knowledge of the gods. It's a breathtaking moment. It's a poignant moment. Bronowski thinks that he's making a statement about the dangers of political ideology, religious dogma. The problem with his statement is that the Nazis prided themselves as being the first truly scientific society. The Nazis actually believed that the racial science of their day had been tested in reality. This was a time when what they call racial science, eugenics, had lots of public support in the universities. It had lots of financial support from large corporations. It had governmental support in Germany, England, and the United States. It was between the world wars. And this fascination with racial science and eugenics was great. It went to the U.S. Supreme Court in a decision called Buck versus Bell. And in that Supreme Court decision, the United States let stand an involuntary, involuntary sterilization program of mentally handicapped persons. The claim was that they caused trouble and, quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. It was an involuntary sterilization program. And that opinion was written by the most scientifically minded judge, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Now, Bernowski was a man of science, and he basically protects himself by consigning socially dangerous beliefs to the non-scientific world. But as I just pointed out, it was thought to be good science at that time, at least in Germany, England, and parts of America. 
But because scientists like Brunowski reject moral and spiritual knowledge as though it's just belief and opinion, he was cut off from a way of fighting against Nazi assertions. You see, Brunowski's like a lot of us. He wants to believe that humans are more than ash. But he rejects moral and spiritual knowledge that assures us that man is more than ash. His solution is to warn then against all certainties. He says it's certainty that got us into this trouble. He wants us to hold all knowledge as tentative, revisable, relative. That's his guarantee against evils like Nazism. I'm telling you, the cure is worse than the disease here, I think. Because when you relativize knowledge like that, you don't have any hedge against abuse. When you cease to believe that moral and spiritual knowledge is real knowledge, certain knowledge, you lose your nerve to battle oppression. On the other hand, when we treat moral and spiritual knowledge as real knowledge, authentic knowledge, certain knowledge about life, we muster the courage to battle oppression. I mean, those people who abolished slavery, they actually knew slavery was wrong. Their opposition to slavery wasn't something they held lightly or open to revision or somehow we hold this tentatively. The same is true of those who resisted that eugenics movement in the West. Hitler's Germany did not resist. They were following what they thought was the way of science. By the way, it was Catholics and theologically conservative Protestants who rejected the eugenics movement. There's a great book on this by Christine Rosen called Preaching Eugenics, Religious Leaders in the American Eugenics Movement, published by Oxford, 2004. That same coalition is with us today in fighting abortion, by the way. Catholics and theologically conservative Protestants. Renowski's remembrances of Auschwitz are moving, but he fails to remember who most fiercely resisted Hitler and did the work of rescuing Jews. It was Catholics, Lutherans, Anabaptists, Reformed German leaders and laity. They did it on the basis of their inherited body of knowledge that they knew it was wrong to persecute the Jews, God's chosen people. Bonhoeffer, von Stauffenberg, Oster, Van Treskow, von Galen, not known too well to us, but in Germany they're known and they're celebrated today not because they were brilliant relativists or skeptics, not because they were tentative and held open to revision positions about morals and faith. In fact, had they followed Vernowski's reluctance to grant certainty to any proposition, scientific, moral, or religious, if they had followed that route, they could never mustered up the courage to fight Hitler to the death. I want you to think about this. These men didn't just act on their beliefs in that soft sense. They acted on what they knew. When that man walked into Hitler's wolf's lair and he placed that briefcase containing a bomb under Hitler's conference table, well, that man was Colonel Klaus Philipp Maria Schenk Graf von Stauffenberg. He was a committed Catholic. Von Stauffenberg was executed shortly thereafter because the plot failed. But he consulted Catholic teaching on tyrannicide, regicide. He talked to his priest. He decided on basis of his knowledge that Hitler was evil. He was a ruler who had to be eliminated. Major General Henning von Treskow, author of another of those July 20th conspirators, he would have sneered at Bronowski's notion that humans can't have moral certainty. He knew otherwise. He didn't merely believe that he knew. He was operating from a long-standing wisdom tradition of knowledge that's universal. These parting words, I love them. He said, just before his death, when in a few hours' time I go before God, 
to account for what I have done and left undone, I know I will be able to justify what I did in the struggle against Hitler. God promised Abraham. See, now he draws. He's going to draw upon this big story that we tell each other. God promised Abraham that he would not destroy Sodom if just ten righteous men could be found in the city. And so I hope that for our sake, God will not destroy Germany. April 8th, 1945, Lutheran pastor, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and General Hans Oster are hung in Flossenburg concentration camp for their roles in the German resistance to Hitler and for rescuing Jews. Bonhoeffer was a rising star in the theological firmament. He left the safety of a position in New York at Union Seminary in order to return to his beloved homeland, Germany, because he had the moral knowledge that he would not be able to bear witness to Christ's kingdom when the Nazi idolatry had finally been judged. So he went back to Germany to bear witness. Our certifiers of knowledge in our culture don't know what Bonhoeffer had. He didn't merely have belief. He had knowledge that this was the true way. Executed alongside Bonhoeffer was Hans Oster, by the way. He was a man described as such as God meant men to be, lucid and serene in mind, imperturbable in danger. He was a Protestant. But he had a great admiration for another of Hitler's fiercest critics, Catholic Archbishop Clemens August Graf von Galen, and said of him, he's a man of courage and conviction, and what resolution in his sermons. There should be a handful of such people in all our churches. Now, Galen, Archbishop Galen, not only claimed moral knowledge, but he also published a pamphlet of essays criticizing the pseudoscientific nonsense of Alfred Rosenberg, the author of The Racial Theory of the Nazis. We reserve scorn for those individuals and organizations who claim we didn't know. We were reluctant to get involved. We didn't presume to know. We were tentative about it. We were hypothetical. These are the people who Brodowski wants to rescue Jews? No. Our knowledge that human beings are worth more than the sparrows isn't knowledge derived from mathematics or science, but it is real knowledge. And it's preserved in and it's transmitted by the great spiritual wisdom tradition of the ages, represented, of course, most clearly in the teaching of Jesus and in the Catholic Church, it is a knowledge discovered and treasured long before the rise of the modern scientific method, and it deserves to be taught as knowledge. University of Southern California's philosophy professor Dallas Willard has written a great book called Knowing Christ Today. And he says, in the Western world, a great historical struggle between what might be called traditional knowledge, represented by the church, and modern knowledge represented by science, has brought us to where many can only think of religion as mere belief or commitment. The extraordinary success of science has created the impression that it is our sole source of certainty. Very dangerous for our culture. You may not realize this, and I'm just going to have to tell you on the basis of my own study and reading, and, but you may not know that really, in all honesty, the central claims of Christianity have never been discarded because they've been proven false. There's no new scientific discoveries that somehow discredit the Catholic faith. You know, people thought dead men stayed dead in the first century. They didn't have science and physics then, right? And people think dead men stay dead today. Nothing has changed in this respect. We've been marginalized for lots of reasons that I'd love to talk about sometime. But it isn't as though there's some contrary body of knowledge out there that has pushed us to the side. That isn't what's happened. One of the great ironies right now 
is that the historical evidence, I'm speaking here not about the theological virtue of faith, I'm not talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about just academic stuff, all right? One of the great ironies is that the historical evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus is actually stronger today than at any time since the apostles stood up on the streets of Jerusalem. We know far more about Jewish burial practices, the psychology of mystical experiences, the dating of the New Testament documents, especially the integrity of oral tradition in first century Palestine. We've got biblical critics now who are atheists who believe that they can trace St. Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 15 back to just two to four years after the resurrection. That's incredible, incredible knowledge of the ancient world. Now, they don't believe in resurrections. They have an anti-supernatural bias. But strictly on the basis of the evidence, if you step aside from the philosophical anti-supernaturalism, the evidence is stronger today than ever before. It's frustrating to watch this go on right before our eyes, where the evidence is stronger, but the plausibility is less. You see, there's a difference between the credibility of an argument and its plausibility to a people. The evidence is stronger today... The plausibility is less today. You know, we've a world, and by the way, science is extraordinary and deserves credit. Don't think in any way that I'm opposed to science. I just think we have a distorted understanding of knowledge because we reduce knowledge to the scientific disciplines, and I think that's powerfully wrong personally and socially and culturally. People have questions. People have questions about life, worldview questions. Who am I? Where am I? What's wrong with this place? What's the solution? What's ultimately real? Those questions don't get answered by science. Do you realize that? Those are questions that in the past were real questions that were given real answers. And those answers were derived from reason, from experience, from divine revelation. Now, when people have questions like this, we get a parade of scientific experts like Stephen Hawking. Astrophysicist, he writes a book called Grand Design. The irony of it is that he doesn't believe there is any grand design because there's no God. And people say, oh, look, he's demonstrated there's no God. No, he doesn't have the means to demonstrate the non-existence of God. Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg, great particle physicist, he felt it necessary to reassure his readers that the universe was pointless. And I don't know how he knows that. I know particle physics doesn't tell us that. You have an entomologist, Edward Wilson. He says he's eagerly awaiting the day when all of human behavior will be explained away with the same level of comfort and confidence with which we decode the genetic basis for ant behavior. (laughs) Nice, okay? Carl Sagan trots himself out and presents himself as a celebrity scientist, an oracle of science, and he says the cosmos is all there is, was, and ever will be. That's a deliberate parody of our doxology, okay? What is all that is, was, or ever will be? It's not the cosmos, it's the triune God. Nobody begrudges these oracles of science, the freedom to speak outside of their field. But listen, none of the philosophic conclusions held by them are warranted by the science. This is similar to Meryl Streep showing up in Washington and testifying about biochemistry, right? Or Sean Penn claiming expertise on criminal justice because he played a death row inmate in Dead Man Walking. These people are very ill-equipped to pronounce on many of these questions. Listen to this. Will Provine, Cornell University, biology. Quote, 
Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will either. It's simply laughable. Nowhere, absolutely nowhere in the published peer-reviewed literature of biology, even evolutionary biology, do any of those statements of which the professor is absolutely certain, nowhere do they appear as conclusions of sound research. Darwin himself despised the use of biology to make these kind of statements. These kinds of sweeping, unscientific statements made in the name of science are commonplace because our people are hungry for wise men and women, because their worldview questions aren't being answered, and because they think that knowledge is the property of a certain scientific discipline or methodology. You know, these are men of great knowledge. They are not men of great wisdom. Scripture says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. They don't have the knowledge that makes for human flourishing. They are not like trees planted by streams of water yielding fruit in season. They are not equipped to lead our culture. They are men of genius. They are not men of wisdom. The accredited institutions of our culture and society have nothing to say and certainly no knowledge to offer with reference to these primary worldview questions of life. They've rejected as knowledge the answers from the Christian past, but they've been unable to develop cognitively defensible answers of their own. They've redefined knowledge through specialization and professionalization in such a way that it leaves those basic worldview questions unanswered. So people are left like sheep without a shepherd. We have a shepherd. They don't know what we've got. We have a shepherd. We have a wise man. We have lots of wise men. Pope Benedict XVI, in his encyclical Space Salvi, teaches that what we know about life comes to a head in the contest over death. And he shows that in the early Christian era, there were sarcophagi that had the figure of Christ displayed by two images. One was the philosopher, one was the shepherd. In the end of the third century, there's a sarcophagus for a deceased child, and it depicts the resurrection of Lazarus with Christ standing as the true philosopher. In his hands are the gospel and the philosopher's traveling staff. With his staff, he has the knowledge, the wisdom, by which he's guided and conquers death. The gospel is the knowledge about life and death. It's what the itinerant philosophers of the early centuries had searched for in vain, and that Christ brought it. It is what men and women in our own culture today search for in vain, and they look to the wrong, quote, shepherds for it. They don't know what we've got. There is a body of knowledge handed down in our tradition. We learn the necessity of caring for widows and orphans. We have the knowledge of customs and stories about the saints. We learn the work of worship. We have a vision that sees the created order as emblematic of the God who created it. We know the meaning of the nuptial act and its relationship to church and Christ and eternity. 
as well as our reproductive organs. I mean, think of how much richer the Christian understanding is of, quote, sex. The nuptial act, which is related to Christ, the church, it's related to eternity. And our world is going around saying, talk dirty to me, Bonnie. They don't know. They do not know what we've got. When we think of science, we think of thinking God's thoughts after him. We think of the mysteries of creation. Christianity is true to the way things are. It's reality, not merely religion. The Christian teacher presents authentic knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that answers questions, solves problems, heals hurts, informs us. It's the same kind of robust and practical knowledge that bankers and defensive line coaches and program designers and civil engineers possess when they deal with the world. It's a knowledge that touches deeper realms of human experience, of course. And above all, the Christian teacher knows how to demonstrate the kingdom. By this, I don't mean that he has magical powers to satisfy curiosity seekers. I mean that he has knowledge and wisdom for living that corresponds to reality. He's in a position to share that knowledge with others Not as an exercise in power, but as friends telling each other where the bargains are. You know, your friends, your co-workers, your children, your relatives, your government, your doctors, your grocers, your bankers, your male persons. Your world doesn't know what you've got as baptized and confirmed Catholics. Now, you need to share it. First of all, you need to discover it yourself if you don't know it. And that's what these sessions are for. And it's what Christ the King is here for. Thank you. I, I don't, thank you very much. I don't know if there's time or not, Barbara. If there's time for Q&A, that's fine. If not, I understand. Al, as you were speaking, one of the things that came to my mind was I see a parallelism in the life of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, how he progressively reveals himself more and more as the Christ, as the Anointed One, as God, and the resistance gets more intense all the way along until, of course, they crucify him. And from that, in his resurrection, he reveals even more to the world who he is. And when you were talking about the accumulated knowledge that we're having now about our faith, I wanted to ask you the question, what does this mean for what we should do as a Christian people right now in the face of the increasing resistance How would you understand us to bring about this knowledge to a world that in some ways is rejecting it and even more aggressively than ever? Ah, that's a great question. And indeed, we need to think strategically like that. I don't think there's anything more important than divine intimacy. I think we should be known as a people of prayer. The methodology of prayer, so to speak, is one of the things that we bring uniquely here. I think that we need to be known as men and women of prayer and study I think that's something that's often forgotten. Scripture tells us to study how best to talk with each person we meet. A lot of times we've bought the pop American religion thing that intellect is not a part of spirituality. Let me just remind you, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your mind as well. And I think we have to compensate for that lack of study that's going on among many of our Christian brothers and sisters. We have to be known as men and women of prayer because that's how we know on an experiential basis God. That that includes sacrament, worship, that's big umbrella there. We have to be known as men and women of study, 
and we have to be known as men and women of service and sacrifice. Those are the three things. People, they might not like us. They might think that we're strange. But you want them to go away saying, well, they do pray a lot. They do study a lot. Well, they do serve a lot. And they do seem to be willing to sacrifice. I just wish they were easier to get along with. <laughs> By the way, that radiating Christ, John Henry Newman from last week that you mentioned, is a prayer that really I think should be made our own. That's very good. There are a lot of us who study, go to school, get degrees, but for the people who don't know where to start, where would you recommend starting to study? Well, I think starting with the catechism is good. You're not trying to avoid uh, other questions related to it, but the nice thing about the catechism is that it puts together all of these diverse elements. It puts together the macro story, the big meta-narrative from Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It puts together the big story. It also gives instruction in prayer. The section on prayer is fantastic. It talks about commandment. And it talks about faith and knowledge. So I do think, really, study of the catechism is excellent. It's what we need to help round us out what we believe, how we behave, and to whom we belong. So I'd begin with the catechism. Now, you probably wanted more than that, though, but I, I want to stress to begin there. On the particular points which I was bringing up today, I do think Dallas Willard's book, Knowing Christ Today, is actually quite good. He's an evangelical Protestant, so he doesn't quite get certain the sacramental dimension of life. But he is a professional philosopher, and so he has real insight into this problem, and he's taught in the academy for 30 years at least. So if you have interest in that faith knowledge thing, I think his book, Knowing Christ Today, is very, very helpful. And I would be glad to answer any personal questions on this, because people are at different places. This book that um, Barbara has recommended before, uh, Union with God, by Father Dave, it's a small pamphlet, but it lays out for us the goal of our lives. We have to be transparent in the way we live so that when people see how we live, they can see not only where we've come from, but where we're going. And I think that little booklet, Union with God, is another great place uh, to begin. But I'd be glad to answer any particular questions, given your own reading experience. People are at different places, so it's hard to recommend one thing. Thank you very much, Barbara, Al. Thank we you. have yeah. really benefited from what you've been able to offer us today. And I think I can say for all of us that we look forward to the next time you're going to go on and present more to think about and understand on Catholic worldview. God bless you. That was Ave Maria Radio's own Al Cresta. He spoke at one of the Christ the King Church's Catholic Worldview series. His title was, They Don't Know What We Have. In an effort for us to learn all about our responsibilities as faithful Catholic Christians, we'll be airing these Catholic Worldview talks on this program as we approach the November U.S. elections. One of our responsibilities as Catholic Christians is to clothe the naked and feed the hungry. After this break, we'll hear an interview from Vatican Radio with Jim Kavanaugh about the Ministry of Cross-International Catholic Outreach. Stay with us. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. 
Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. Just as we have a duty to prepare ourselves to learn about the stands of the candidates who ask for our votes and to know how these conform with the teachings of the Church, we also have social responsibilities. We must learn to care for our brothers and sisters, especially those in need. A friend for over 40 years, Jim Kavanaugh is president of Cross International Catholic Outreach. Vatican Radio's Philippa Hitchens interviews Jim about their mission. A passion for the poor and a belief in the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. Those are the two founding principles of a Florida-based charity called Cross International Catholic Outreach. Founded just over a decade ago to help fund existing aid projects across the developing world, Cross currently supports innovative programs for the poorest of the poor in Africa, Asia, South America and the Caribbean. We began in 2001. Our vision was to provide aid to the church's ministry of charity that is already there. Jim Kavnar is president of Cross International Catholic Outreach, which counts seven U.S. bishops on its board of directors. He was in Rome recently for a visit to the Vatican's charitable agency, Corunum, with which Cross has been cooperating closely for the past few years. On this occasion, Jim told me he was sharing ideas about the role of charitable giving in promoting both new evangelization and the forthcoming Year of Faith, scheduled to begin in October of this year. For Jim himself, the event will bring back powerful memories of the previous Year of Faith, called for by another pope back in the summer of 1967. Jim Kavanagh, welcome back to our Vatican Radio studios. Very good to be with you again. You're here talking about the work of your organization, Cross International Catholic Outreach. You're talking about it also in terms of the upcoming Year of Faith, aren't you? Which had a particular poignancy for you. Just remind us of your own connection with the Year of Faith. (laughs) I very clearly remember a Year of Faith that began on June 29, 1967. It was the summer that I had graduated from college, University of Notre Dame in, in the U.S. And it was the year that four of us who had met one another there got together and spent that summer praying and talking to people and seeking God for where we would go and work. And it was on that day that we made decisions and decisions were made for us that led to our working together in Ann Arbor, Michigan for 25 years. And we still work together in ministry. We're in different cities now, but we're on each other's boards of directors and we're all engaged in one way or another with evangelization. And the ministry of cross-Catholic outreach is focused upon ministry of charity, and yet we've always sought out those ministries of charity that incorporate appropriate evangelization. And so when I hear about a year of faith, I can't help but reflect on what happened back in 1967. Certainly it was a year of faith that has borne fruit in your life ever since. And we certainly experienced it as a year of faith. We were stepping out in faith with, you might say, no visible means of support at that time, and yet trusting God and the steps we took beginning on that very day, you know, transformed our lives and led to what we've done for the last 45 years. Just remind us a little bit of the history of Cross, what it does, how it all began. We began in 2001. Our vision was to 
provide aid to the church's ministry of charity that is already there in developing countries, not to send Americans to create new works, but to look for those that already there, you know, bishops and priests and nuns and lay organizations that are already there effectively meeting the needs of the poor but lacking resources. And the priority was always there for us. Look for those that also effectively share the word of God. And now, in recent years, that's become even more significant to us. It's always been a priority. But uh, particularly the awareness of the new evangelization has caused us to reflect on it more. And in fact, this year also begins our latest five-year strategic plan. And the number one objective is to grow stronger in our ability to provide aid to those that reflect the church's ministry of charity effectively, but also incorporate appropriate evangelization. What does that mean to you at Cross? What does it mean, the new evangelization through your work? It means looking for those that recognize that the most effective way we can help people is to bring about true transformation. Now, when you talk about transformation of the poor, most often in that context, people think about helping them become more self-sufficient help them become less dependent on handouts, more able to provide for themselves. But we also recognize that the most effective transformation comes about when God is part of it. And we see this all the time around the world. I was in the Philippines last year and visited some of the ministries we support there. They work in the slums of the Philippines. And they told us, they said, you know, we can rebuild the houses, we can change the externals, and we can create a nicer place to live. But unless we change the hearts and minds and relationships of the people, it will all be a slum in two or three years. And that's why they ran programs for every age group, preschool, young children, teenagers, uh, young adults, uh, married couples, to lead them closer to Christ, to involve them in prayer and sharing their lives as Christians, to evangelize them, taking the adults on retreats that they call Encountering Christ Retreats. And they say that has resulted in a transformation of the people from being kind of isolated people to being joined together, supporting one another, meeting in their homes, talking about the Lord. And the result has been that the material transformation has truly produced human transformation. And because of the spiritual component, the man who told me, if we don't transform the people's hearts, minds, and attitudes, this will all be a slum could also point to the fact that 45 of the people in that community had just walked out of having prayer meeting together that morning to launch their day, and that we could go to places that had been transformed physically five years before, and they were pristine because the people were transformed, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, they were changed. Philippines, of course, an extremely Catholic country, the most Catholic country in Asia. You're also working in contexts where the church is not such a huge majority. Well, I was thinking of a particular location in Haiti. Uh, One of the missions that we support there, led by a Catholic priest there, when he came there, it was because the local bishop said, this is the darkest corner of Haiti. It is spiritually dark because it's totally dominated by voodoo. It is materially dark because it is the poorest place in the country. We have been supporting his ministry since 2003, but he's been there for 23 years. 
Today, there is no voodoo. The voodoo priests all got converted by him, and they're now all Catholics. <laughs> there is hundreds of people with new houses and a plot of land where they've learned to grow crops and sell some to help support themselves. There are 2,400 children in Catholic schools being supported, and the lunches that they eat every day, the food is being purchased from those people who got the houses, so they learn to farm and they learn to sell some of their produce. And today, you see a completely transformed community. It is spiritually transformed in that there is no longer any dominance of Buddha superstition, and instead, the church is at the center, and all these children are being raised as, as Catholic children. It is materially transformed because you've got 600 families with new houses. You have a microfinance program that is helping people start little businesses. You've got a program for the very, very destitute who can't support themselves, very elderly, etc., who receive monthly supplies of food and toiletries. And these are all things that we've supported. In fact, we're increasing our support even more because it does reflect such a remarkable true transformation materially and spiritually and they go together and he would be the first to say so this is a very good story coming out of haiti which is still struggling isn't it to recover from the devastating earthquake yeah the 20 january 2010 earthquake left a million and a half people homeless today there's still 200 to 300,000 in tents many more in transitional housing that is more more permanent housing but not truly permanent it's still extremely poor. The earthquake certainly set things back. But this very place that I just described, Kobanal, Haiti, is two and a half hours drive away from the capital. The thousands of people left the capital and went back there because their families had lived there. Their, they maybe had lived there at one time. Now there was no job in the capital. There was, you know, their homes were gone. And so a lot of our earthquake reconstruction has been in places like that to build new houses for families moving in there and need to be reintegrated into their old community. A lot of your work is advocacy in the United States, isn't it? Raising funds to support this extraordinary work that you're doing in different countries yeah. around the world. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that side of things. We have 45, almost 50 priests now who represent us in parishes, and they go around and they preach at all the masses in parishes maybe 1,000 to 1,300 a year parishes will host some of our priests coming in. We see this as very important. The Catholic Church in the U.S. has sort of lost that sense of the missions. When I was a, a child growing up in the church, Catholic grade school, you heard about the missions all the time. You know, They don't hear much about it. And instead, they hear about all the problems in the church. And so... When our priests come in and then when they get our literature and, and things like that, it brings hope because it says, well, this is what the church ought to be doing. This is the side of the church that we love. And so it, it's an, an inspiration to people. And it also gives them a tangible way to be involved in the missions because they can, they can give funds and they know that this is going to go through a Catholic mission of some kind and it will have results and that they're going to hear about the results because we're very, very good at communicating between the Church of the Poor and the Church in the U.S. and enabling the Church in the U.S. to see the impact of their support and to learn and grow from the faith of the poor, whose faith often shames ours, frankly. 
Even now in times of great difficulties, recession, uncertainty, are you still finding that people have this generous side to them when they hear about what their money can do in other countries? Yeah, it's been interesting. When the recession began in late 2008, we wondered what would happen. What happened was that when our priests would go in, the same percentage of people still gave. The amount they gave was 10 or 15% less because people had a little less money. But every the will was there, and people gave to the best of their ability. And despite the recession, every year our, our ministry has grown 25% a year, all during the recession. Even before that, it was even more quickly, more rapid, but it just shows that the, the generosity in the heart is there, even in difficult times, and people give what they can. And so we've seen a wonderful growth. What do you see as the biggest challenges for your organization today? Well, we have I think we have a spiritual challenge to remain true to what God called us to do. I think it's one of the reasons that in our strategic plan, the very first objective was to strengthen our ability to really reflect the church's full ministry to the poor, which is what, as, as the popes call it, integral human development addressing the integral needs of the whole man, spiritual. And I think we realize as we grow, as we get bigger, we have to be effective in carrying forward that spiritual vision. So we're actually making it, trying to make it stronger rather than allow it to become weak. I think another big challenge is, in fact, going to be growth because of the economies. It's affecting the U.S., it's affecting Europe, and overseas the effect is even worse. In poor countries, for example, we send them perhaps the same amount of money in U.S. dollars, but it buys less. Cost of food goes up, value of the dollar or the euro goes down, and it's much harder for them overseas. So there are many stresses that they're communicating to us that they're under, and we're very committed to seeing that they don't suffer. And so that's why we try to continue our support at the same level. But I think the current economic situation, far from being kind of a short, transitory, 18-month, two-year downturn, looks like it's going to endure longer, and that will remain a big challenge. What gives you most hope at the moment? You mentioned the Philippines, you mentioned Haiti, other projects perhaps where you're really excited about what you can do in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what gives me a lot of hope is just seeing God at work. You know, in our own ministry, kind of the remarkable things that sometimes happen. You know, we, we say at our ministry that our patron saint is St. Isidore, the farmer who used to go to church every morning and pray and go to Mass and was accused of goofing off from his work, and yet he got more done than anybody because while he was out praying, the angels would plow his fields. And so we, we often say that we have to put God first and the angels will plow our fields. And remarkable things ha- keep happening. You know, end of last year, a man who, or we know it was a man or a woman, anonymous check for $600,000 came with a check from from a bank saying the donor wishes to remain anonymous. And we said, well, the angels are plow our fields. There's nothing we can do to get that check. We don't even know who to ask. And yet God just provided so that we could do more to help the poor. So those things give me a lot of hope. And then, you know, going overseas and seeing programs like the, the Bishop of uh, Bishop Grion in, in the Diocese of San Juan de la Maguana in uh, Dominican Republic 
we do these huge water projects, you know, put a dam to capture water from a stream up in a mountain, pipe it down seven or eight kilometers to a big tank, distribute it to 20 villages, give every 2,000 families, 3,000 families get water. We've done a number of these big projects. And yet this is a bishop whose plan for his diocese, his pastoral plan, is displayed in a big poster. In the middle of the poster is a crucifix, and around that little crucifix it says, Encounter with Christ. And then in the next row is family, individual, retreats. In other words, here is a bishop who sees the the mission of the church beginning with Christ and then branching out to build bridges. I mean, literally, he builds bridges across rivers because the government's too poor to build them. He puts in water supplies, providing water for thousands of people, which saves hundreds and hundreds of lives of children who die from drinking contaminated water. He builds houses. He, he leads a remarkable transformation of the lives of the poor, and he's a man really centered upon the Lord. And you see the fruit born in his work. My thanks there to Jim Kavanaugh, President of Cross International Catholic Outreach. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we heard a talk by Al Cresta from the Christ the King Catholic Worldview series. Al's title was, They Don't Know What We Have. Al is President of Ave Maria Radio. He's heard nationally on his talk program, Cresta, in the afternoon. We also heard a report from Vatican Radio on the mission of Cross International Catholic Outreach with its president, Jim Kavnar. We thank Vatican Radio for their contribution to our program. Our talks on putting on the mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks were recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 442. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask that you support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, May our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.